Well, good morning, everyone. Hope you had a great week this past week. Um, we're going to uh, continue with First uh, Peter, so let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Our Father, we thank you very much for the word that you've given to us uh, over these past months, uh, teaching us what it means uh, to, to suffer, how we should suffer, um, the benefits of suffering. All of these things uh, are, uh, are good, and we, we pray that you would help us today to gather um, from your word uh, what you have to say, to understand it, and most of all, to uh, understand it on our hearts that we would apply it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, so it's a really exciting day. I, I am super, super excited that we have a visiting retired Baptist pastor with us today on the day where I'm going to address probably the, one of the hardest passages of baptism. So it just worked out perfectly for me. Um, so if, uh, you know, if you have any... Uh, comments or anything, just uh, no violence. No, no I'm, just, I'm just joking about that. Actually, there, there are two really difficult things that are gonna, we're going to look at today. Um, and it, it's uh, within the context of what we've been discussing up to this point. Um, remember that the overall theme of First Peter is suffering, trusting, and doing what is good. If you put those three things together and you understand how those three things go together, that's the entire purpose of Peter as he speaks to those particularly who are suffering persecution. And that persecution can come in different ways, but, um, but pretty much what's happening is that these uh, Christians have um, pulled, the, they're, they're now set apart from the people that they used to just match with perfectly, right? I mean, they were just part of the world. Now all of a sudden there's something different and that has caused persecution. And so that means that they're suffering for doing what is good, and so they have to entrust themselves to God. Today, uh, we're going to look at a section where um, the theme of it is that it is better to suffer for doing good than for doing what is, e what is evil. And so just to sum up everything that we've uh, covered up to this point, remember for the last few weeks, we've talked about what that means within the context of particular relationships. So the, this persecution can come and just the engagement, if, even if not persecution, how does a Christian engage with the government? So just more broadly society, how does a Christian engage with their employer? So you're out in the workforce and you're working, how, how do you do that? And then in, in the family, as a husband and wife. Um, and then he says to sum it up, Okay, to sum it up, in all your relationships, what's the same about all these relationships is that we're to be harmonious, brotherly, humble. We're to be honoring in all of our relationships. We're to submit in the relationships in which we are to submit. And that is what it means to do good. And, and that doesn't apply just if things are going well. That's also if they are unjust. Even if you're treated unjustly, you're to do this. And you're to give a blessing. The natural response to an insult coming at you is what? To insult back, right? That's the natural response. But instead, they're to give a blessing. And the argument that he does, he gives a psalm for this argument. Why are they to give a blessing? Well, they're to give a blessing because if they want to receive a blessing from God, they should give a blessing. It was, you are called to receive a blessing from God, therefore bless others. 
And he quotes in this psalm that if you want to be blessed, keep your tongue from evil. Don't speak back insult. Keep your tongue from evil and seek peace. Because the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, but his face is against the wicked. And that's the the argument that he gives for making sure that we are to speak and to, to proclaim what is good and to always give a reasonable answer back. Um, and then he gives a, a little point here. I think within suffering, the, he ra- the verse we kind of wrapped up with last time um, is that when we deal with suffering, it's easy to get sort of this mindset when you engage with people that, that you know, I, well, boy, I have to watch out with what I say because there's going to be confrontation. Um, but actually, the the joy that we get from this is to know that the Lord, if he is for us, then who is there who's against us? Who is there to harm you if you do good? And really, that should be your typical response. When you engage with people, you shouldn't be expecting uh, kind of a hunker-down mentality of uh, expecting conflict because God is good. And in so many cases, when we speak what is good, it is a blessing to others, and they might even be confused about it, but there isn't an attack back, right? It isn't that they treat us unjustly. Who is there, after all, to harm us if we do what is good? So don't fear, do what is good. But at the same time, he does recognize that it very much could be the fact that you could be attacked, right? And that you could be treated unjustly. So today we're gonna look at 1 Peter three fourteen through 22. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the things in which you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamations to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. All right, well, so what, what is this passage? So uh, Jesus preaching to dead people and baptism saves us. Right, those are a couple of things that might kind of jump out to you. Like, okay, wait a second. Well, exactly, what do I do with that? Um, these these can be difficult to deal with, but this is a great time just to think about our basic principles of biblical of biblical interpretation or of scriptural interpretation. Right, we we believe two things. We believe that that this book, of course, is inspired by God. This is God's book. And so if it's God's book, there are no errors in it. We, it's, he is, God has written this, it's infallible for our teaching. And being uh, true in all its ways, it also doesn't have any inconsistencies. 
So what that means is that we will interpret scripture in the light of other scripture. We have to look at the whole of scripture to interpret individual passages. Because if you take individual passages out of what the broad teaching of scripture is, then you're going to tend to, ha- to have theological errors. Then we can do that, not because that's just something we made up, but again, because we believe and know that God has given us his word. And if that's true, then we know that it's consistent. The next thing is, though, that God did speak through men, right? So he spoke through those who wrote, and therefore this also has a human aspect to it. Um, And in the writing, we have to take into consideration the purpose of the author, right? The the author is writing for a purpose, and he's trying to communicate something. Um, What the Bible is not a whole system of little paragraphs of theological abstractions, right? This book has an overall purpose and the context of this passage has a particular purpose. So we're going to interpret, whenever there are multiple possible interpretations, we're gonna interpret within the overall purpose of the the book and of the um, individual passage that we're looking at in light of the whole scripture. So how are we gonna be able to deal with some of these? Well, what we need to do is think about what his overall flow is. So let's look at what he's trying to accomplish here because there's a lot. He's kind of gunning at us pretty fast and arguments like this need to be read as arguments. So what I've done is to kind of boil it down, okay? So what is he trying to say? Going back to what we started with, when you're insulted, don't insult back. Instead, be prepared to give a reason for the hope and keep a good conscience in what you do. So that's pretty tough, right? He, if somebody insults me, why? Why should I do that? That's the natural question, why? And anytime you see in a passage, you're reading down through and all of a sudden there's the word for, for, that invites you to ask the question. What you should do is he's making an argument for why, why should I do that? Well, because, and then he presents for, because it's better to suffer for doing right than for doing wrong. That's the answer to it. But then, of course, that begs the question, why? Right? It kind of sounds like you're, yeah, I was thinking more 14-year-old, but, um, but really kids of any age, right, are going to be saying that. And there are definitely times to say, don't ask why. But God is generous to us and good to us and he does tell us why because we do need to know why sometimes. So why? Why is it better to suffer for doing what is right than doing what is wrong? Why? Because it's for our salvation. That's the answer. Because it is for our salvation. Suffering for doing what is good is part of our, is, is the means by which he accomplishes our salvation. And so let's take a look at how he, how he, uh, argues this. So first of all, the, the point is that we would do what is good. Remember he said in the previous section, when you're insulted, don't insult, but bless. Now, what does it mean? What does it mean to bless? Should you, you know, raise your hand and pronounce a benediction over them? Like, what, what does that mean to bless them? Well, now it says what this is to bless. So now he expands this. Even if you are to suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but do these things. And the basis of it is to sanctify Christ as Lord. Okay, to sanctify Christ as Lord. You know, sanctification means a separating, to make holy. And it's it's not that we make Christ holy, but in, in our 
mind, we have to intentionally make Christ holy. He is Lord. He is other, right? Then what we've done is to set apart. Christ is not part of the world. He is Lord, and that means that we have set up a dividing line. Christ is Lord, and so what, by sanctifying, that means I, I now am not part of the the order of the world anymore. I'm not under the, the teaching of and the rulership of the world. I've sanctified Christ in my heart. And by sanctifying him in my heart, now what that means is having set up, I've set up a war. And that's what holiness always does, right? I've set up a war because now I've made myself different. And this is the basis of the suffering that the apostle Peter is teaching here. Because now, those who are over here are no longer so happy with me. What makes you different? Why are you different? You're supposed to be with me. But what we can do then in that conflict is to be prepared, right? And and what are the two things? What does it mean to do good? Well, the two things we do in doing good are to be ready with an answer for the hope we have. Remember, they, they demand an account. That's what this is. This is evangelism, but this is evangelism under kind of aggressive terms because they're demanding an account. You've sanctified Christ as Lord in your heart. I demand an account for what you are doing. And so we're ready with an answer. We're ready for a defense for anyone who asks us for this hope because obviously we have some hope that they can't possibly understand because that's the only thing that could possibly drive this because we're different. And the difference is based on a hope and that's what we have to be able to say. We have to be ready to explain the hope that we have. And that hope is found in Jesus Christ who we have sanctified as Lord. Your hope is in something different. It could be in lots of different things but you have some form of lordship in the world. Either the government is your Lord you, you think you yourself, you think you yourself are your Lord, but, ser- but you're not. Whatever it is, you, you now, we are able to give a reason, a ready answer for why we have um, this hope and what our hope is, because our hope is in Christ. At the same time, not only do we have to give an answer, but in order to be a blessing, we have to have a good walk. We have to actually be walking in a way that matches what we say. Because if you say you have a hope, but in reality, you're walking just like the world, then what kind of hope do you have? You don't have any hope. But if we keep a good conscience, and this stands for all the things that are involved with our walk, right? We, in our conscience, we know that what we do matches what we say. And that's the point here. Not only are you saying, but what you're doing is matching what you're saying. So we have a good conscience, and in that way, what will happen? How will this be a blessing? Well, the blessing comes because what happens to the people over here? What's the goal? according to this passage. Kind of a weird goal, it sounds like. What's going to happen to those who revile your behavior? Yes, they will be put to shame. The goal is that they would be put to shame. You know, Pastor Bailey can't teach this hard enough because 
it's, we cannot believe this. You cannot believe this. Our society absolutely, <laughs> again, it's like, wait, what? <laughs> what hope do you have here? Make an argument. Defend. Why in the world would you want to shame somebody? Well, the shame is ideally for their salvation, right? We saw this earlier in the book where he said that, um, you know, that they would, be, they would look at you and, you know, maybe, maybe they would be one, right? Because of the, the nature of what your uh, behavior is, because of the nature of what you've said. And so in, in this, what we see is that they would be put to shame and it's for their benefit, right? But if you put people to shame, what's the natural reaction to that? Remember, because they're in the natural. So what's the natural reaction for that? They don't like that, right? And so what will happen? Suffering, suffering. So you see how this, how this works. Doing what is good and suffering go hand in hand because doing what is good sets you apart as holy unto God, which will put them to shame, which is what actually causes the insults and causes the aggression. I don't know if that sounds like a good plan, right? I need a little bit of bolstering for this, right? Because, all right, Lord, you said that I should do that, but man, I don't know. Why? Why should I do that? Because it's better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. You're gonna suffer. I mean, there's no doubt about that. You're gonna suffer. It's just a matter of whether you're gonna suffer for doing what is right or doing what is wrong. And it is better to suffer for doing what is right than for doing what is wrong. Now he gives, uh, that of course begs another question. Well, why is it better for us to do what is right than what is wrong? And so then what he does is to launch into an answer to that. And so it starts again with four. So why? Well, because, and here's the argument. Now the argument is a long argument that has a lot of aspects to it. And so we're gonna work through this argument. Why is it better for us to suffer for doing what is right rather than doing what is wrong? Well, first of all, look at the example of Christ, right? We can draw uh, encouragement from this. Look at the example of Christ. Christ also, it's not like Jesus, who is our Lord, is just saying, hey, you guys go out and suffer. That's not what happened. In fact, why again is it that we are suffering whenever we've sanctified Christ as the Lord? Who, after all, do the people of the world hate? Do they hate you? Not really. Who do they hate? They hate Jesus. Right? That is the foundation. And whose suffering is it anyway when we suffer? It is Christ's suffering. Christ's suffering is, Christ's suffering and our suffering have, are tied together, and well, they're not the same. Right, the suffering of Christ is foundational for our salvation. He is the one who entered into suffering for the sake of our salvation. Uh, our, our suffering doesn't, isn't efficacious. Uh, I hate using big words. It, isn't, it doesn't do anything. Right? Our suffering doesn't do anything to save us. So we're not masochists out here. We're not just trying to work our way through by suffering enough. There is only one thing that happens um, the only one suffering that can save us, and that is the suffering of our Lord. And so the encouragement we have is Jesus Christ, our Lord, has gone ahead of us, and he already has suffered. And why did he suffer? 
He suffered once for all, the just for the unjust, like us, right? I mean, we're, the whole, his whole point is here, even when you're suffering unjustly, and that's what we see Jesus went through that exactly. He exactly went through that. He was the just suffering for the unjust. And why did he do it? To bring us to God. Having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And so again, encouragement that we have is, it is better to suffer for what is, um, what is right because, we, because look, with Jesus, he was vindicated. In his suffering, he was vindicated. Although he did suffer in the flesh, he was made alive in the spirit. Okay, so that's the first. The first is, is uh, argument is from um, an uh, example that Jesus has. But it's not just from an example, it's actually from the power of what he has done there. The next argument that he makes is an example from history, right? an example from the Old Testament. So now what he does is to go into kind of what can be, look like kind of an obscure passage. Um, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now, one way to interpret this, which is not the correct way to interpret this would be that Jesus, so, and this has been interpreted this way at various points, Jesus, when he died, his, he, his physical body died, and what he did was, in his spirit, he descended into hell, and he made, and he proclaimed the gospel, uh, according to this, a very select group. He, he proclaimed the gospel to people who um, were disobedient dur- during the time of Noah. Okay, and then what, evidently with the, op, with the idea of trying to convert them or maybe just, just to preach to them, but w- in whatever case, he, was, he did that while he, in the three days in which he was uh, dead and buried. Um, that, is, that is not correct, right? That is, and how do we know that? Well, again, going back to our principles of scripture, that um, the Bible interprets the Bible. And that is a very, uh, that there, we don't find any other basis for that anywhere in the Bible, right? So, so first of all, not to say that that makes it impossible to have that interpretation, but it certainly, the Bible doesn't support that. The next thing is uh, when we look in the context of what the Apostle Peter is trying to do here. Remember that he's saying this for some reason. He has a reason for why he's doing this, and it's part of an overall flow of an argument. It's not that all of a sudden, hey, let's, let, let me whip out a separate theological ditty here and throw that at you, and then I'll get back to what I really want to say. Right? Instead, what we see is that uh, what he does here is to, he's making an argument, a flow of an argument. It is better, and what is the argument? He's trying to explain why. Why is it better to suffer for what is, um, what is right than to suffer for what is wrong? Why is it better to suffer for what is right rather than suffering for doing what is wrong? Um, and the, the argument comes, now what he's going to do is he's going to show you about those who suffer for doing what is wrong. Uh, in, this, in this passage, so first of all, there are a few things that you can see. One of them here is that the NASB threw in this little now to kind of give you a little pre-interpretation, right? But you don't need this that's not actually in the, in the scripture, but that's kind of an interpretation added there. But in this passage, what it's actually teaching 
is that, he, that Christ went in the spirit in which he also made proclamation uh, in the spirit, uh, let's see, all right, he was made alive in the spirit in which he went and made proclamation. Now, looking at this, this book, we, again, we have to look within the context of the book. We've seen this before. What else, where else has the spirit of Christ spoken in this book, right? Because he went in the spirit uh, in earlier in chapter one, the spirit of Christ spoke through the prophets, right? So the spirit of Christ has always been speaking throughout all history. And that's what this, this passage is talking about here, that, that, he, that the spirit of, of Christ went uh, in the spirit, he was preaching through Noah, right? He was preaching through Noah in the time of disobedience, um, in the time where all those around, because remember what the point is here, is that how do you handle speaking what's right whenever you're surrounded by those who are wrong and speaking to you? Well, Jesus Christ has also given us example. In the spirit, through Noah, when he spoke through Noah, in Second Peter, he, talks, uh, he calls Noah a preacher of righteousness. Right? That's, what, that's how Peter describes Noah, that what he did in building the ark was to preach righteousness against all the world who was against him. So what he did then was to speak uh, through, the spirit spoke through the proclamation of Noah during the time of disobedience, and that all those who were disobedient were, um, were uh, uh, against him. Now, this is to highlight the point. The main point is the patience of God, right? That's the whole point of this passage, of this section, is to show us an example of the patience of God. How do we endure whenever we're suffering? What did God do? Even he spoke through Noah um, through the spirit, of, the spirit of Christ, Christ spoke through the Spirit through Noah in proclaiming the the truth, and he waited patiently even for those who were disobedient, right? To those who were doing wrong. Now, those who were doing wrong, of course, now where are they? Well, they're now in prison, right? So this passage is best to read this passage. He spoke to the spirits in prison. So now he's talking in the current, right? They're in, they're in prison. Why are, why are they in hell? Why are they under punishment? They're under punishment because when, because they were being uh, back, they were disobedient during the time of the ark. And um, God was uh, patient during that time. And now they're uh, in the, um, now they're in prison, all right, I feel like I totally butchered that, although I was trying to, <laughs> I had it a lot clearer than that in my mind. But, <laughs> but you follow, you can read that two different ways very easily. So the question, I mean, really it comes down to what, how you interpret um, when, right? Does that when only refer to those who were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. Uh, you don't have to just interpret it that way, right? But rather that um, Jesus uh, spoke through the spirit and he describes the, those who are in spirits, uh, the spirits as those now in prison who once were disobedient. And when did he speak to them? When the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. And that, that interpretation actually matches what he's trying to say here, right? I mean, he's, that what he's doing is saying that 
in uh, patience, that God in his patience uh, waited, and even those who opposed, he spoke to them, right? And that's what we're to do too. Even those who oppose us, even the disobedient, that we speak to them, that we proclaim the truth to them. Um, now, in, in this point, though, uh, we, what we see is that, um, that not only did those who did what was wrong, not only were they consigned to prison, but what else is true? Why is it that we should do what is good? It's because those who do what is right, God is able to save. He showed that he was able to save Christ. He's able to save those who do what is right. And Noah did what is right. He had faith in God, he built the ark, and God was able to save. He was able to bring out eight persons safely through the water. So it's better to suffer for doing what is good than, to do, doing what is, than for doing what is wrong because God is able to save. Now these examples, of course, are just examples. So at this point, you'd say, yeah, but you know, really, what does that have to do with us? I mean, do we have to draw our own conclusions about this? Well, no, actually, he says that this whole, everything I've been talking about actually is for you, right? Because everything I've been saying here is an anti-type, is, is a type, it is, in other words, it corresponds to something that uh, has been given to us right now. So all of this, the reason I'm talking to you about, the, about Noah and the ark is because this applies to you. This is why you need to hear this. Because corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. It's, it's just like the ark, what he's saying is you know, that this is a figure. Just like the ark saved, God saved through the ark, now God saves through baptism. So this, this is something that applies to us. Um, now, this is where we get into another passage that can definitely be misinterpreted, right? Because this is one of the favorite lines for um, those in the Christian church or something like that, uh, or other churches that believe in baptismal generation. Uh, Roman Catholic Church, all the churches that believe in baptismal regeneration. Baptism saves you. So, of course, what does that mean? We should get out there and baptize as many people as possible, right? Because if once you get baptized, then you're in. Good right? That's what that means. Well, no, that's not what that means. And that's an example. This one isn't really that hard to explain. That's just an example of taking a passage out of context, just ripping a few words totally out of context. Because the apostle Peter very clearly teaches what he means by that, right? What does it mean that, that baptism saves us? Because in, in the sense that Peter is talking here, we do believe that baptism saves us, but only in the sense in which he is saying it. Okay, because he makes a distinction. First of all, the distinction is that it's not the outward ceremony, right? What a sacrament is, baptism, the Lord's Supper, what a sacrament is, it's an, it's an outward sign and seal of an inward spiritual reality. And that outward sign is not the thing that saves you, right? That's exactly his point when he says that not through removal of dirt from the flesh. It's not about the fact, you know, when you get wet, the dirt comes off. That's not what this is about. That's not how you're saved. You're not saved by any kind of water being put on you. But rather, through what? What is baptism? Yeah, that inward reality is what? It's, it's 
always joined to faith, right? It's joined to faith, and that is through an appeal to God for a good conscience, an appeal to God for a good conscience. That is, the, that is what baptism actually is. It's, it's asking God for, um, f- that he would cleanse our conscience. What does that mean? That he would forgive our sins, that he would make us new, that in him we would die, right? Because all, every external baptism, or every external, uh, the, the inward reality, it's always a connection back to that, uh, to, to what it signifies. And what it signifies is Christ's baptism. Christ was also baptized. Um, remember what he said whenever uh, John and James came to him and said, hey, can we be uh, on your right and on your left in your new kingdom? And he asked them something. He said, can you drink my cup? Can you be baptized with my baptism? Christ's baptism is what saves us, right? That is what saves us, his baptism, his death, and his resurrection. Because baptism does save us in the sense of it's a means by which what is actually what saves us, the basis of what saves us, the foundation of what actually saves us, the work of Christ, right? Corresponding to this, baptism baptism now saves you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The, the means, it's the same thing as when we talk about um, faith saving us. Does faith save you? Well, n- not, it doesn't, it's your faith, you can't put faith, you're not putting faith in your faith. You're not putting faith, your faith isn't the thing that saves you. Like if I have more faith, it's very, very common to try to, to think that way. Okay, well, I, I don't feel good about myself, so I just need more faith, because if I had more faith, then I would feel more saved. But that's not, we don't put our faith in our faith. But faith is a necessary means. It's a means by which we uh, approach God. And it's the same thing with baptism. Baptism is a work of faith by which we appeal to God for a good conscience, for forgiveness. But it's an external sign. Okay, now, right now, all, all you uh, Baptists out here, if you aren't familiar, we, we actually have... Uh, uh, Baptist and Presbyterian, the, we, we allow both uh, in our uh, teaching uh, and our elders are allowed to hold to either uh, credo-baptism or pedo-baptism, either the Presbyterian, the idea of uh, infant baptism uh, versus or uh, believer's baptism. And in this case, this one might seem like a slam dunk for all you believer's Baptists out here, right? Um, but I do have to say something else, which is, uh, you do need to consider what, what the meaning of circumcision is too, all right? Because what is circumcision? According to the Bible, according to the Old Testament, circumcision is of the heart, right? That's real circumcision. Circumcision is of the heart. It's always, God always said, look, you, I don't care about all your outward circumcision. What I want is circumcision of the heart, so what that meant for believers at that time was you only got circumcised at the time that you had made a proclamation of faith, right? No, that's not what happened. What happened was that you were included through, by faith in, uh, the, in the body of Christ at an earlier time. Now that, what that doesn't mean is in baptism, what we don't believe as Presbyterians is that, um, so 
so when that baby gets baptized, they receive this grace, and then from then on, it doesn't really matter what they do because you know, they're, they're saved, right? That's baptismal regeneration. But rather, we hold to the Westminster Confession uh, of Faith, uh, which says that, um, that God will, in, his, in the right time, for all those he has appointed, really apply grace that he has given to us in baptism. So we, neither do we say that we uh, hold just to, uh, that if you just get wet, that you're saved. But we also don't say that baptism is just some like extraneous thing that you do. It's some like memorial service or something. It, it is actually God's work, right? And we appeal to him by faith in baptism. But for what? We appeal to him for a good conscience. And that is, again, back to what the whole purpose of, of this is, the whole purpose of the passage. Um, ultimately, this is Christ's sufferings, and his sufferings are the ones that are effective. So what, what we do is we appeal to him for union with Christ, right? We appeal to him to be identified with him. We need his righteousness. We don't have righteousness. I'm appealing to you on the basis of your sufferings, on the basis of your death. I, in my baptism, I die with you and I wanna, ri- I wanna rise with you. I wanna rise to new life with you. That's the appeal that we have in baptism. Um, and that, that is why, if, if that is your, your desire in baptism, then the appeal to a good conscience means that you desire a good conscience. So, it's better to suffer for doing what is right than for doing what is wrong. If you can't, on the one hand, say that in your baptism you're, you're appealing to God for a good conscience, but then when you engage with people in the world, act with a bad conscience. You, you can't do it, it's impossible. You have to, you will suffer for doing what is right or you'll suffer for doing what is wrong, but it is better to suffer for what is doing right, for, for doing right. Because then what you're doing is you're living your baptismal vows. You're living what you ha- your appeal to God for a good conscience. You know, at this point, I think it's important to, to look at this just more on a heart issue, right? Making an appeal to God for a good conscience. Um, what about in your life? You know, have you made an appeal to God for a good conscience? And maybe a lot of you have been in church for a long time and you've made an appeal to God for a good conscience, but do you believe he gives it? It's so easy to continue to go back to our own self-righteousness, right? And to say, you know, I, I, I don't have a good conscience. I mean, I walk, you know, I, I know myself. I walk in all sorts of sin, you know, I just do this, I, I sin in that way, well, whatever it is, I, I don't have a good conscience. And God can't give me a good conscience. But God can give you a good conscience. Right? That's, it's because it's not on the basis of what you've done. It's never been on the basis of what you've done. What is your appeal to God for a good conscience? It's baptism. Right? It's identity with Christ, it's union with Christ. My appeal to God for a good conscience is I need Christ. I wanna die with him and I wanna live to God. 
And what God does in that is what? Make you, as long as you keep working at it, then he'll give you a good conscience? No, that's not, that's not what the point is here. That those who have died by faith in Christ can have a good conscience. And that's what God's uh, desire is for, every, for, for everyone. That's why he's calling us in repentance. Repent, turn away from doing what is wrong Right? It's better to suffer for what is doing right. Sanctify Christ as Lord. Be baptized with him. Right? Be baptized in his baptism. His suffering was effective for our salvation. Well, what about our suffering? Our suffering is identity with Christ. Right? We, we are his. We're Christians. And Christians suffer because Christ suffered. Absolutely. But we know that it belongs to him so that whenever anyone opposes us, we can always have uh, faith knowing that he if, if he, if the suffering is really, if the anger is really against him, that he can save us. How do we know that he can save us? Well, he was able to save Noah. Right? He was able in the face of more opposition than we've ever had. How many did he save there? Eight out of the whole world. Right? How much opposition do you have? Are you one of eight? No. Right? God has given us a blessed time where there are so many that he's transformed, so many that he's made new. And so when we oppose those who, or when we're opposed by those who do wrong, we can turn to him knowing that they really aren't opposing us, first of all. They're opposing Christ. And what we know about what his father did, his father vindicated him for what he did wrong, or for what, uh, for what he did, because he, he didn't do any wrong. He did what was right. So he was vindicated. Even though he suffered in the flesh, he was made alive in the spirit. And it's the same for us today. That right now, we'll suffer in the flesh, but it's for a purpose, because it's better to suffer for what is right than to suffer for what is wrong. Next week, what we'll do is to look for a second benefit because it is better to suffer for doing what is right. God uses suffering for another benefit, and that is to put to death sin in our lives. Because although in this passage we talk about having a clean conscience before God, we still do have to deal with the things that surround us, with our own sin, the things that still live within us. And God has an answer for that too. So stay tuned. Okay, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that in your goodness to us, uh, you have given us your word and you've given us your spirit and we, we do pray, Lord, that um, the spirit of Christ would be active in our hearts now, that we would come to you in uh, humility, that we would uh, be- actually believe what you say and to walk in it. I pray this week that we would not be afraid to sanctify you as Lord, even if that does mean suffering for us and that as we, um, as we suffer, that we would look to your example and that we would look to your power. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.